on Triple M Mining HQ. Good morning and welcome to Mining HQ, your go-to show for everything happening in the mining industry. I'm Pablo Miller and this morning, Chris Lamesh here going to be sitting down with Jan Clark, the Managing Director of Australia at Hatch. We're going to talk about their award-winning engineering roles, how the resource sector can achieve a greener future and also how mining e-waste can be a valuable economic resource. Let's get into it. Good morning, Chris. Hello, Pablo. Good morning to you. And we also want to say hello to the Managing Director of Australia and Asia at Hatch, Jan Quark's on the phone. Hey, Jan, morning to you. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm really well, thanks. I I guess to give you more of an introduction, uh, talking about Hatch, well, an award-winning leader in engineering, operational development projects in metals, energy and infrastructure industries. Jan, you must have a pretty busy role. What what happens? You're overseeing a lot of people every day. Yeah, it's pretty busy. So um, my, my job, I'm the managing director of Hatch in Australia and Asia, uh, and that covered, I oversee around a thousand people uh, around, we have at any given time around 200 projects going uh, in this kind of, let's call it the time zone. Um, uh, and it's an interesting cross-section, Chris, uh, from, from a lot of it's mining, but there's also a fair amount of infrastructure and energy work in there. Uh, some interesting projects, too. Uh, some of your listeners in WA might be aware of the Kemmerton lithium plant, for example, being built uh, uh, just south of Perth. Uh, an interesting uh, tech, tech project is called for nickel in Queensland. Uh, and a really interesting uh, copper mine called Hu'u in Indonesia. Uh, fascinating technology on that one. And then, you know, the, you have to kind of move your mind to other things. Uh, we've got multiple projects on the go in Sydney and Melbourne for metro projects. And another big one uh, is uh, Sun Cables, a big Australia-Asia power link project, which is the world's biggest uh, solar energy project that people might might have heard of. I was, um, I was going to yeah. ask you about that, Jan. Let's go back to the uh, Sun Cable Australia-Asia power mm. link. Sounds incredible. How's it shaping up at this stage? It, it is a fascinating project. Uh, I tell you, it, it's, uh, I, we, we at Hatch and myself, I really like audacious projects, and this has got to be one of them. It's, it's of the order of $30-plus billion of project uh, to build uh, an enormous solar farm in uh, the Northern Territory, and then connect that via around 5,000 kilometers of cable running up through Darwin, underneath the ocean, through Indonesia, through the islands there in Indonesia, all the way to Singapore. And uh, that cable and that solar farm will provide Singapore with around 15% of their electricity uh, when this is up and running in uh, 2028. Uh, It's an interesting one because, you know, Singapore doesn't really have a lot of opportunity to to access renewables. They don't have a lot of land. They don't have a lot of wind. Uh, nuclear doesn't really make sense in there. You know, they're a small island city or a, uh, uh, sorry, a city nation. So um, one of the ways that kind of was dreamed up and looks like it's making sense is actually to run a very long cable from from Australia to Singapore to provide uh, renewable energy, which we have a lot of. Um, so it's it's an interesting concept. Now, when you get down to the details, though, it, the project gets even more interesting. You know, it turns out you can't buy 5,000 kilometers of copper cable easily. Uh, we have to probably make that ourselves for the project. 
Uh, it's hard to, you know, I think this thing uses of the order of 20 million solar panels. Where do you get those? How do you install them quickly? Um, it's uh, how do you run a cable undersea through Indonesia? Uh, how do you connect into Singapore? There are there are a myriad of interesting electrical and project challenges that uh, that come into that one. Jan, I've got to ask you about you being the chair of the Green Hydrogen Consortium. Can you give us a background mm. background on this ongoing work? Yeah, that's another really interesting one, Chris. Um, the um, well, first of all, people are probably aware hydrogen is a big deal in our renewable economy. Uh, Australia has lots of potential to make lots of hydrogen from our plentiful. Uh, renewable um, uh, uh, energy sources. And um, the Hydrogen Consortium was set up as a way to kind of figure out what is really the industrial supply chain that will make hydrogen work for heavy industry, especially mining. So it's a group of mining and energy companies that they're kind of trying to figure out that whole value chain. And it, it kind of starts with, well, how, how would we really use hydrogen in industry? Uh, you can use it as chemical, right, uh, to maybe reduce iron ore or maybe to reduce nickel uh, to make metallics. Uh, and you can also use it as energy, uh, especially what we're looking at is a way to replace all that diesel-fired equipment uh, in the Pilbara with hydrogen-driven uh, driven equipment. So there's a part of the consortium that's thinking about, all right, so what's the end use? How much hydrogen do we need and how would we use it most efficiently? And it's interesting, Chris, we did a bit of an analysis. Um, I'll just throw some numbers out because they're interesting. You know, in the Pilbara annually, uh, they use around 3 billion liters of diesel to drive all the trucks and all the trains and all the machinery out there. And just from doing a bit of math, we were able to show that if we were to replace all of that diesel with hydrogen, we'd need around 400,000 tons per year of hydrogen. And what's more fascinating is in order to make that much hydrogen to completely decarbonize the Pilbara, uh, it's around $25 billion of infrastructure that would need to be built. And that's that's where you get the supply chain. That's where you start to think about, all right, well, where's the power going to come from to make that hydrogen? Where will you make it? And how will you make it? And how will you get it to the people that need it? And how will they need it? So the, the, the hydrogen consortium is thinking about those kind of things, and, and once we kind of understand the business case and what the best business case is, though, that group will be advocating for building the parts of the supply chain that allow us to decarbonize a lot of mining in WA. So Jan, on that note, how on track are we in the resources sector for a greener future? I guess a couple of questions here. And uh, how, do we, how do we accelerate the decarbonization of the mining sector? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I tell you, first of all, um, if you asked me that six months ago, I would have said not doing very well. Uh, but I, I kind of feel like through the discussions I have anyway with a lot of the people in the mining industry, it's it's really changed um, tremendously. And kind of talk has been turning into action uh, from a lot of the mining uh, companies uh, and parts of the industry as well. So the needle is really moving. The, uh, what's been holding things up has not not been about desire. Uh, I think I think uh, all of the, the mining industry knows that we need to do this as cleanly and sustainably as possible. It's it's more about how do we get the business case uh, to work right. And uh, finally, you know, like any any of these major problems, when you pick away at them and you kind of break them down and look at all right, we got to decarbonize, we got to electrify, we got to 
we gotta um, do things in in smaller units or or more continuously. You start to find things. Uh, so uh, how on track are we? We're nowhere near halfway, that's for sure. But uh, I feel like finally um, most of the mining industry understands the roadmap to decarbonization. And now it's a question of figuring out, okay, there's gaps in technology, there's gaps in funding. The the business case doesn't quite add up. How are we going to make this work? It, it, within that, you know, it, it is, it is it, the interesting part of the paradox is we actually need more mining. We actually need more mining to help climate change. And now in order to electrify the world and move the world to renewables, the numbers are we need something like twice as much copper in the world as we have today. We need six times more nickel and we need 12 times more lithium uh, than, than we have today on, a, on an annual basis. That's not in total, that's annually. So we actually have to ramp up mining. And the thing is, we have to figure out how to mine all of that additional lithium, nickel, copper, and other battery materials, but have less of a footprint as we do that. And um, there is a really strong effort. I see it across the industry. Nobody wants to go and keep doing things the way we always have. Uh, People are really motivated to figure out how do I build my next mine or my next processing plant to be uh, as low as possible footprint. So it's, it's quite exciting now. Jan, I don't have any figures here, but there must be a lot of uh, decommissioned mines throughout Australia. Your, your thoughts on how we can reutilize them? Yeah, yeah, good good point. There are of the order of 60,000 oh, 60, wow. decommissioned mines uh, scattered across Australia. I think, I think the government keeps a priority list of which ones are actually, you know, plain hazardous. And that list even runs into the thousands. Um, across the country, so um, so they, it, it it is a big issue, um, and you know go, going forward, uh, I think companies are being far more responsible about how they design at the front for closure towards the end. But we're living with a legacy of, as you know, hundred plus years of of mining in in the country, uh, that that needs to be dealt with. There's 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 a lot that can be done actually. Um, uh, the ultimate, of course, is to design a mine from the beginning with, with closure in mind. We do that now, but that wasn't done 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, there's an intermediate bit, which is, you know, ideas of how, how do you make a, the closure of a mine pay for itself? So if you can at least, if you if you can return it to nature perfectly and have that be a cost-neutral exercise, how would you do that? And and that can be done. There are ways to kind of, at the end of a, of a mine's life, kind of work the economics, uh, extract the last, let the last bit of value the mine produces pay for a progressive closure of some sort. And then there's, there's the final ones, which is, all right, I do have a, a closed mine. Uh, what am I going to do with it? We, we've actually, we're actually starting right now uh, a group to start looking at broader, broader answers to that question than just just close it and return it to nature. Uh, once the land has been disturbed and the infrastructure is there and there's a community there usually, um, uh, what is a way to not only clean that land up but make it usable for the next generation for some other value-adding purpose? Uh, we've had a go at figuring that out. Uh, we, the first time we looked at that actually was ERA in Northern Territory, the Ranger Uranium, and in that one we will return to nature. Uh, that's that's indigenous land. Uh, 
and um, we figured out a pretty good technical way to uh, make it safe and natural again. But th- there's a new there's a new set of of mines being closed. Um, there's a couple of them on the eastern seaboard in New South Wales and Queensland, where in one case in uh, Kidston in, in uh, northern Queensland, the the mine pit can serve as a um, hydro dam, and you can use it for pumped pumped hydro storage. So that that's called the Kidston mine, and that's an interesting way to to use abandoned mines and for to help with renewable energy. And there's another example in the Hunter Valley, where there is incredibly valuable land that's been industrialized by coal mining, and uh, we're now looking kind of in a consortium with a development company and a coal mining company to figure out, all right, well, this is the lay of the land. There is some residual value in the, the coal that's there. How can we how can we take advantage of the industry that's already there that was previously serving the mine, revitalize that and create what we call new social capital? So a new way to replenish that, that area and create new industry that is totally different from coal mining. And that's where the answer is. The answer is community-driven, um, you know, new new ideas that that generate business all right those are as simple as as, as energy like solar farms or or pumped hydro schemes or other we we spoke about decommissioned mines before the break now first of all we should talk about what exactly is mining e-waste and how can that become a valuable economic and environmental resource for the future yeah, this is this is a really important one. Uh, you know, uh, we've already been talking about how the the world needs more of these electronics and battery uh, type uh, metals uh, in order to go to a more you know sustainable uh, renewable future. Um, there's there's a heck of a lot of of that material we already need in the in the economy now, and it's sitting in in our garbages, in in the e waste. Um, the, oh, the order of uh, 50 million tons of e-waste is produced every year globally, and that's in Australia. I've got the number here. It's around 140,000 tons of e-waste, of perfectly good metal that is sitting there in our garbages and our landfills that could replace a unit of mined material. So um, I guess it's pretty self-evident, but we, we often overlook that, that um, the best metal to, to, to get is the metal we've already mined and it's already sitting amongst us. Um, it can al- it, it, metal's pretty good because it can pretty much all be recycled. And um, just recycling that, we, we think, will already um, reduce CO2 emissions by around 23,000 tonnes uh, for Australia, which, which is a fair amount. Also, this e-waste contains, you know, high value, very scarce materials. Um, at the one end, you got your copper, your nickel, but lithium, cobalt, precious metals, platinum group metals are are all sitting there. Uh, and these are all things that are critical to building, you know, solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, all of the things that we want to convert to as we move to a, a more sustainable future. It's It's kind of interesting. There's... There's a hundred times more gold in a ton of e-waste there than there is in a ton of gold ore. When you think about when you think about when, when you see a truck full of full of gold ore driving towards a concentrator, that might be one gram per ton at most in that in that ore. Um, so there might be in that whole triple seven truck there might be maybe a couple hundred grams at most of gold. 
And you think about the concentration of gold in a thrown away cell phone or a thrown away calculator television, there's a heck of a lot more and it's a lot less wasteful. So it's an area we have to go and it's really exciting. A lot of the mining companies are now starting to see they should own that part of the supply chain and uh, they should develop ways to recycle and in addition to their ways to to, to mine uh, these materials. Well, let's look back on your 10 years as a uh, MD at Hatch Australia and Asia. Some of your greatest accomplishments as a business? Probably a difficult question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. But, you know, um, Chris, what what's really fun is that um, in being in an engineering company, especially, you get to do things that have never been done before. Uh, and you get to have an impact. And, you know, some of the things I'm really proud of that, we, I feel like we've had a hand in uh, our, you know, rethinking tailings and rethinking closure, uh, as we were talking about earlier, about um, the way you can revitalize communities by finding ways to uh, improve, change or extend or um, repurpose uh, mining uh, to a new end. Uh, I was really excited. We had a chance um, in the last few years, in fact, to to um, to do studies for for some of the mining communities, for the mayors and the town and the and the and the, the city councils in the Pilbara, to help them think through how do we make our cities more sustainable, how do we make them um, more synergistic with the infrastructure that the mining brings to our community, so that we can have you know social value that that exceeds uh, just having a job on the mine uh, at the moment, which which is fantastic. It, it's all been also been really exciting to see how. Big teams can tackle really big problems, um, and how network effects, you know, through through knowing other people, through the connections you make, even by listening through, you know, podcasts like yours, you get to know more people, and you, you look them up, and you find things. And multidiscipline teams are exciting. It, it's been really, really good. So, yeah, the the greatest accomplishments are being able to do audacious things that have never been done before, for sure. And uh, the late eighties. A chemical engineer. What was your calling for that role? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe it's a bit different from people starting their careers today. I joined. I joined the industry when we were in a recession. Um, but you know, when you're young, you don't worry about things like that. The uh, engineering is fun. It's an it's an action oriented profession where you got get to build things and do things and make a difference. Um, and by the way, for any younger listeners in the audience, um, if you're thinking about a career, um, engineering is a, it's a fantastic time to be an engineer right now. There are so many new challenges that society needs us to fix and figure out and build. Um, uh, there's lots of opportunity in engineering at the moment. That's what called me in even then, was the amount of things that needed to get done. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Mining HQ. Uh, last question here, reflection. What have you learned most about yourself in the role? Oh, dear. Humility, Chris, for sure. <laughs> okay. <You know? laughs> Humility. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing more humbling in our kind of role than to finally stand there in front of the thing that you've built, that you've designed, that you've, you've periled over for five or ten years, and you're about to turn it on, and you just wonder at that last minute before they really start commissioning a new, a new mine or a new, a new piece of equipment or whatever it is you've designed and built. And will it really work? That's that's a that's a that's a humbling experience. For the very latest mining news in WA, stream the Mining HQ podcast. Available now on the Listener app. L I S T N R.